Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. A very pleasant good evening. Welcome to That's Truth. It's a pleasure to be with you again another Tuesday evening. I do trust that tonight's program will surely be a source of blessing and encouragement to you, that the program will give you some spiritual enlightenment and encouragement as you continue your journey as a child of God. Pastor Murphy, a very pleasant good evening. Uh, Good evening, Brother Erskine, and good evening to those who might be listening tonight. Well, we are going to continue our topic on Bible prophecy, and specifically we'll be looking at the doctrine of heaven, what the Bible teaches about heaven, that place that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has gone to prepare for those who have put their faith and trust in Him. So, Pastor Murphy... I don't know if you would like to review a bit <coughs> on some of the things that you covered last week, and then we'll continue with some questions. Yeah, let me just say um, quickly that um, we've been trying to do this entire series on Bible prophecy, and uh, we're trying to give you a complete profile of what the Bible says in regards to the future. And since we covered the doctrine of eternal damnation and hell, we felt it was necessary to conclude the series uh, with dealing with heaven. And last week, we began to look at the whole question of what does the Bible teach on this subject. And we got into the book of um, Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, which uh, give us perhaps the best exhaustive treatment on this subject uh, in the New Testament or in the entire scriptures. It's not limited to this uh, these two chapters, but clearly these are the two um, uh, chapters that give more detail. I must add that there are lots of things that we would like to ask about heaven. Uh, we're so curious, and especially when you get a certain age, uh, you're looking forward to that eventuality, and your mind begins to speculate and begin to um, um, have all kind of extravagant thoughts about what it would be like. But we are restricted to Scripture, so we must not go beyond Scripture. We must not speculate and get into the realm of conjecture. Uh, so basically what we're trying to do um, this past uh, few evenings is to try to tell you what the Bible says as opposed to what people say or what, what people think is what says the scriptures. Okay, thank you so much, Pastor <coughs> Murphy. Pastor Murphy, we started this um, question last week, what specific does the Bible give about the place called heaven and where could this be found? You also look at what will be there and what will not be there. I'd like to um, continue with... Um, this question. Yeah, we um, t- talked about things that will be missing from heaven because um, while we're dealing with a, um, 
a concept that uh, in a great part of the book of Revelation, there's no doubt there's a lot of symbolism there. Yet, um, one when you look at the details that are given in respect to the city that comes down the heavenly Jerusalem, um, I think one would be hard-pressed to, to entertain thoughts that this is not something that is literal. So there is some symbolism, um, but it's very, very clear that the specifics and the dimensions that are given would indicate that we're dealing with a, a real city. Uh, we talked about the walls of the city, and uh, chapter 21 Verse 17 gives us an idea of the dimensions of the wall. When you take and you compute the figures that are given, there are 144 cubits. You discover that that computes to 216 uh, feet wide. Now that is something that is almost incomprehensible, That, uh, but that gives you an idea of the magnitude and the magnificence of this great city. Of course, walls are always a symbol of security. And uh, the fact that it is uh, made of jasper or what the Bible is, something clear as crystal, uh, one can just use his imagination to, to to see exactly the glory and the beauty and the, the awe that will uh, be manifested in the city. Then we talked about the gates, and we're told that there are 12 gates, and that these gates are not Simon Peter. He does not even mention we're told that there are 12 angels at these 12 gates. And uh, we're told that these 12 gates bear the 12 names of the tribe of Israel, and we're told that there are three gates on either side. Uh, and I think that is... Um, in, in the, and by the way, we're told that these gates are, are made of pearls. And we're also told that these gates are always open, which speaks of a state of freedom and movement. Uh, no restrictions, basically. That's the concept there. Um, I, I kind of mentioned that when you look at the 12 tribes of Israel, and then you're going to discover that the foundations of the, the city is made of 12 different stones, and we're told that they have the 12 apostles. I try to uh, point out to you, quite frankly, that we must not confuse Israel with the church. The church has not replaced Israel. And if one doesn't understand that, right through eternity, even at the very end of it, uh, of this life, when we establish eternal order, God still maintains the distinction between uh, the 12 tribes which carry the, the names and the 12 gates and the 12 foundations which carry the name of the 12 apostles. It should be clearly clear there that these are two different entities that God is dealing with. I think that is important point when you're dealing with Bible prophecy and understanding what the Bible teaches along this line. But the um, foundations... It's made of 12 different stones, and we're told that those stones are got different colors. Jasper, which is a diamond. Sapphire, which is blue. Chalcedony, which is a greenish blue. Emerald, which is green. Sardonyx, which is a red and white stone. Uh, um, uh, Sardius, which is a, a fiery red stone. Chrysolite, which is a golden yellow stone. Beryl, which is a sea green. Topaz, which is greenish yellow. Uh, uh, chrysopassum, which is uh, a green, a golden green, uh, jacinth, which is violet, and amethyst, which is a purple quartz. Now, if you can just put those twelve different stones together, and one can uh, imagine the the spectacular beauty, especially when the, the light and the glory of God shines on these these things. This is all designed uh, to give us an idea of the incredible beauty and the incredible magnificence that will be there for us. The other thing we're told about it is that the the city is four square. It is fifteen. 100 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles high. Uh, the dimensions are, 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 are amazing when you think uh, of those dimensions in themselves. Um, and then we're told that the about the streets of gold, uh, we're given an idea that these, these streets are made of gold and there's one central street uh, within the city. Let me just uh, give you an idea and compute for you for just a moment what the uh, dimensions are. 
if you take 1500 uh, miles by 1500 miles by 1500 miles you've got uh, 3,375,000,000 uh, cubic miles if you do in square miles you've got 2,250,000 square miles uh, now the moon is about um, 2160 miles in diameter we are told that the New Jerusalem is 1500 miles in diameter if you can imagine a city the side of the moon coming down to earth and being suspended above the earth you pretty much have an idea of how huge the city would be um, someone has done a computation by the way that if you take the dimensions the length by the width by the height the capacity is over 100 billion people can actually exist in this particular city. So clearly it was designed for and uh, for multitudes, uh, num- numberless amount of people. There's plenty of room in heaven for us to have free movement and to enjoy ourselves in the presence of God. Uh, to ju- use a comparison, by the way, if I may do that, um, China has 1.4 billion people. Every year in China, uh, 16 million people are born. Every single day in China, 43,835 people are born every single day in China. The land mass of China is 3.6 million million square miles. The land mass of the New Jerusalem that is coming uh, coming down is actually 2.5 million miles. So that gives you an idea in terms of of, of comparison. Uh, The city itself is made of pure gold, and we're told in chapter 21, verse 18, that this gold is a kind of a purified gold. Well, it's almost like a see-through situation. So you've got the walls, you've got the gates, uh, you've got the size and the dimensions. And uh, in addition to that, the other thing we're told about it, that's a place of holiness where we talk about the sanctity of the city. There'll be no sin there. Uh, there'd be no iniquity there, no evil. Uh, it would be completely a place of holiness. And three times, by the way, in these two final concluding chapters, in chapter 21, verse 8, and, uh, and uh, verse 27, and then in chapter 22, verse 15, we are told exactly who will be excluded uh, from this city. Uh, so there's no such thing as universalism, where everybody is going to end up in heaven. Uh, even in the final chapters of Revelation, it gives you an idea who are the register of those who will be included and who will be excluded. Uh, if we look at chapter 21 and verse number 8, it lists those who will not be in heaven. And I would just like to go through that very quickly with you because we don't sanctify the event. The Bible said the fearful will not be there. Uh, that's an interesting word because the word that is translated fearful really means those who are cowards, those who are timid. And of course, this has to people who don't have the moral courage to, uh, to stand up to be counted among God's people because they're intimidated either because of shame or ridicule or criticism. But the Bible says the fearful would not be there. And then it talk the unbelieving. And that word is, is epistos, which means those who don't have any faith. Remember, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the fearful, the unbeliever, and then the abominable. Um, this particular word that is used here has to do with anything that's the object of disgust and abomination. And if you go into the Old Testament, you have an idea of wh- who the abominable are, uh, because God lists certain sins and God called them an abomination. This would, of course, include people who commit incest. Those are people who commit bestiality. Those are people who commit uh, uh, um, uh, homosexuality. And those that practice any kind of perversion, those are going to be excluded. They're called the abominable. And then murders is an interesting word. 
Uh, this would include people who has premeditatedly took, taken life. Not only the guy who goes into your home and uh, try to steal your property in the process, execute the, the owner, but of course those who deliberately take life. This would include the abortionists, people who willfully take the life of innocent uh, babies. The day is coming when they will discover that they're not playing with some kind of a protein blob. They're playing with a natural soul and a human being, and they're going to be held accountable. And one has to think in terms of the medical doctors who've used abortion as a means to line their pockets. And they will be held accountably before God because of uh, this, this murder. And then the other term that is used, who will not be there in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, are the whoremongers. That word's an interesting word. It's the word parnos, and it comes from the word fornication. So it, it's talking to people who are morally violate the moral standards that God has set. And it might seem a trifling thing today for people to live very loose and to be engaged in all kinds of secular activity, sex, sexual activity. But the day is coming when they will discover to their dismay that uh, such acts of violation of the moral law of God carry consequences. And uh, that's what the word whoremonger here. And then sorcerers. Interesting word here, Brother Erson, because the word sorcerer here comes to the word pharmatikos, where we get the word pharmacy. And it has to do with people who are engaged with using uh, chemicals or using drugs or portions to influence the minds of other people. This is where the drug addict comes in. This is where the drug pusher come in. Uh, people who are, uh, are peddling drugs and transforming people's minds and influencing people's minds. And then idolaters, those who, those who devote their lives and their energies to objects other than God uh, in their lives. And then the Bible says, finally, liars. People who are false and uh, who are not true and who bear false witness and who, um, whose character and whose integrity is suspect. And then in chapter 21, verse 27, it talks about anything that defileth. This has to do with moral defilement, uncleanness, sexual acts of uncleanness, anything that work of abomination that violates the moral order of God as stipulated in the Bible. And then it adds again, anything that maketh a lie. You'll notice that twice in this section, uh, the, 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 you know, we think lying is... Uh, you know, we talk a white lie and we talk about a, a, a black lie. We talk about all types of lies. But in, in, in both of these categories, uh, lying is, is, is uh, repeated again and again. And if you jot down to chapter 22, and verse 15, there's a continued list of those who will not be in heaven. It said dogs will not be in heaven. It doesn't mean animals, by the way. Puppy dogs. Uh, puppy dogs. <laughs> the word dog is, has a metaphorical use and has to do with people of low character. As a matter of fact, if you go into the Old Testament, you find that the homosexual is called a dog. Uh, very strong language is used to describe him. But here is referring to people who have very low moral standards and character. They will be excluded. And sorcerers is once again mentioned. Homongers are mentioned. Murders are mentioned. Idolaters are mentioned. And then it says, whosoever loveth or maketh a lie. Notice the repetition of these terms again, as though God keeps repeating that people who practice these things and engage in these activities recklessly, uh, we're not talking people who fall into an act of sin. We're talking people who, this is a, this is a habit of life. They, they habitually engage in these kind of activities. Uh, God says that they will not be part of his kingdom. I'm glad that you um, explained that part there. Because I think somewhere in um, First Corinthians it said, but such were some of you. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the dilemma, if I might say this. I think the church has encouraged uh, the idea that 
the gay, uh, the lesbian, that um, somehow this is just a normal lifestyle and that it has to do with their sexual orientation, etc., etc. And I think the church has facilitated the tolerance of this kind of practice and did not want to normalize it as though it is something that is to be accepted in society. I don't think anybody who reads the Old Testament and studies the Old Testament and, and, and even come to the New Testament uh, will discover that this is something that God disapproves of. This is not something we should in any way uh, countenance or we should anyway entertain or we should anyway tolerate. Uh, I think we ought to let people know that this is a wrong lifestyle. This is something that is reprehensible, something that God considers to be a perversion. And uh, Paul in Corinthians chapter six, uh, chapter six, in referring to the believers, said that such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were justified, showing clearly that there can be a change in this kind of a lifestyle, and the power of Christ and the gospel can transform a person's life and uh, move them from their homosexual lifestyle into a heterosexual type of living. So, Pastor Murphy, how can someone then be sure that he or she is going to heaven? Well, there's only one way to be absolutely sure about this matter, and that is, does that person, have that person put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Uh, heaven is not, you don't get to heaven on the basis of your works, uh, on, on the basis of your, your good life, your church membership, uh, your baptism, your confirmation. These are things that follow conversion. The important thing is that a person have the, the faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, let me make it very clear that when we talk about faith and trust in Jesus Christ, two things are involved. You cannot have genuine, authentic salvation without repentance. And what that means, that a person, when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, must come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that they are sinful before God, and they are willing to turn away from their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ. Now, here's my point. I'm, I'm emphasizing this for one reason. Uh, because you've got people who are practicing things that the Bible contradicts. Uh, I go back again to the, this homosexual movement because in America you've got politicians who are claiming to be uh, Christians who are claiming to be in uh, running in politics and if you make any statement against that they, they make you as though that you're not Christian in dealing with those kind of things. It needs to be stated quite clearly in my judgment that those people have not repented. If you have not repented of your sin, you cannot be saved. You must have repented your sins and put faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And people who continue practicing these kind of things and claiming that they're Christians and habitually engage in these things and they become a dominating sin in their lives and would never, that power was never broken, it's an indication that these people do not understand what repentance is. The church has made the mistake of preaching belief without preaching repentance. And the Bible says you must repent and believe. And saving faith involves those two elements. You repent of your sins and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ without any inclination of, the, of uh, repenting, you do not have genuine, authentic salvation. You have a bogus faith and it will not last. And you will discover to your dismay in that day that you do not have the real saving faith that the Bible talks about. Thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. We have a Listener from St. Kitts who sent in a few questions. I don't know if you'd like to um, tackle these questions. If I can tackle them immediately, I would do that. If I need some time to um, investigate them and probably give a better response, I would probably do that at, a, at the next meeting. But okay. let's see what the questions the are. The first one is, um, explain the following. Romans 8.23, where he said that the fruits of the Spirit are not only they, but 
ourselves also which have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to which the redemption of the body. Well, in that particular case is that um, uh, the Apostle Paul is, is talking that we have the first fruit of the Spirit, and that means that the Holy Spirit, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a dunk payment. And what what salvation is all about is not just that the human spirit will be saved and the human soul will be saved, but the whole body is going to be redeemed. And that's what um, Paul is talking about there, that our, our, while we have the initial down payment of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and he's doing a transforming work in us, every one of us are still aware that we still have the residue of the sin nature in us, which is a constant battle for us to live a holy and a godly life when we got this drag on our lives because of the sinful nature. And we, we groan in ourselves to be delivered from this sinful nature so that we do not have to struggle and we can live a life of holiness and, and, and godliness before Him. I don't think there's a, a living Christian today uh, who is not disappointed in his, his life in terms of not being able to come up to the perfect standard that God requires. The weakness of the flesh, um, the, the the thoughts that we can sometimes entertain, uh, we are all aware that we are fallen creatures. We are aware that we have a new nature in us, but we are also aware that there's a struggle between the new nature and the old nature. And we desire that this this albatross around our neck, this weight, this burden, this sinful Adamic nature, this old man be removed. And that's what uh, Paul is talking about. We groan uh, for that day. But meanwhile, we have the down payment. We have the initial uh, gift of the Spirit within us, and that is the down payment, ultimately, that one day the whole body would be redeemed. Pastor Murphy, we have a caller who is ready to, be going the, to go on the air. Go right ahead, sir. Good evening. Hello. Yes, good evening. Yes, yeah, good evening. Good evening, sir. Um, when Paul was talking about um, human beings that turn into dogs, and so, you know, they have human beings they can turn into dogs and other animals, and so that is the animal um, your, your um, pastor Murphy is referring that wouldn't be going into heaven. No, no. I, I, if you read the, the chapter there, and uh, you, you've got to interpret the Bible by the Bible. You can't just inject uh, our modern ideas into Scripture. We've got to understand the context of the passage. If you take the word dog, how it is used uh, in Scripture, I'm talking about how it is used in Scripture, not how it's used today in the modern occult or some kind of the... Uh, I've heard about this uh, transposition where people can actually do different things. And I'm not going to get into that. Uh, maybe at another time when we deal with demonism, we'll deal with it. But in the context that is used there, it's talking about people who are... It's a metaphorical use of the word dog, uh, where it's referring to people of, of very low moral standards. And if you go into the uh, book of Leviticus... Uh, you'll find that that word in particular, dog, is used in respect to those who violate the moral standards by engaging in uh, homosexual activity. Uh, that's the, the, the word that is used to describe those type of people. It's a derogatory term, but it has to do with the fact that uh, they practice morality that is uh, contrary and abomination to God. Uh, and then also, if you check Philippians, uh, you'll find that Paul refers to false teachers again, as uh, those who use that particular term as well. So that's what we're saying, but uh, we're not talking about, um, we're talking about people basically who who violate the moral standards of God and who have abominated themselves by practicing all kinds of perversions. Those people be excluded from heaven. And I, and I said that deliberately because uh, 
today, I don't know if you're that in America, you, this might shock you, sir, but in America, you have churches that are the whole congregation are homosexual, the pastors are homosexual, and everybody is singing that they're going to heaven. That's not going to happen. Because Paul tells us in Corinthians chapter 6, such were some of you. I don't know how we can embolden and encourage people to be living a godless lifestyle and still give them the assurance that all is well and they're going to be in heaven. I don't know which heaven they're going to be in. Because if you haven't repented of your life, look, all of us, including myself, we were born with a sinful nature. We were born wanting to do wrong. Uh, We've had to, through our faith and trust in Christ, learn to control and um, allow the Holy Spirit to help us. Even when we got saved, we still got temptation to do wrong. But we have the Holy Spirit with us who is working in us to transform our lives. And we don't, we just don't let go of our lives and do anything we want to. We are people who are trying to pursue holiness because without holiness, no man shall see God. But what I'm concerned about today is that the people who are deliberately, habitually living in this kind of a lifestyle, and they, you, you get the impression that they really believe that uh, this lifestyle is acceptable. My argument there is that those people do not understand what the biblical doctrine is repentance is all about. And if you have not repented of your sins, I don't care who you are, you simply will not be accepted by God because repentance and faith is required as a basis for putting your faith and trust in Christ. Yes, yeah, so, um, what I was saying now, uh, I couldn't, I have to turn up my value sure. after the way on my phone, you understand? Yes, sir. So definitely, um, those people, you know, because you know they have people that can turn into different animals and so on. So I just want to um, hear my point on it. But I couldn't hear you from um, when you started out. Oh, okay, so, okay, okay, okay. So, I understand uh, where you're coming. We will, yeah. c- we will be covering uh, the, the doctrine of uh, demonology at some point in time, and there are some things that people might be shocked to discover what really happens up there, because we're living in a world where, the scientific world, where we've forgotten that there's a spirit world of evil. So we will probably come to some of that at some point in time. But thank you so much for calling. We really appreciate that. Yeah, okay. God bless Bye. you. Bye-bye. Okay, yeah. bye-bye. Pastor Murphy, I don't know if you want to continue, What's but the there question? are three more questions. Still in Romans chapter eight uh-huh. to explain um, Romans eight nineteen the meaning of sons of God, where the Bible said, "For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God." Well, the only one the sons of God are believers. Uh, uh, John says, uh, "No, are we the sons of God, and doth not yet appear what we shall be, what we shall, what when he shall we shall be like him." So the, the whole universe is waiting until it is finally displayed. Uh, to the world that we who have put our faith and trust uh, in God are the sons of God and uh, the world finds it difficult to believe that there's anything unique about us but the day is coming when it will be made manifest to the entire universe that we who have put our faith and trust in Christ that God has adopted us into his family and that we are indeed sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ and we will be put on display before the world because we are manifestation of God's grace remember when the angels fell there was no grace for the angels. Uh, but God, because of fallen man, is able to put his grace on display. And what is grace? It's showing God's unmerited favor towards us. 
And in that day, we will become the trophies of His grace. And it will be manifested before the entire universe how God has salvaged humanity and was able to rescue man from his condition of lostness to the point now where he's actually adopted into God's family and bears the image of his son and assumes the nature of his son so that we become like him and we become like Jesus Christ. So the sons of God are believers that will one day be manifested who our true character is and what our true nature is. When people see us down here, uh, we're still with our fallen nature. We're still struggling uh, to, to try to perfect holiness. And sometimes we fall and we make mistakes and they think that um, <clears throat> we're just like them. They don't fully understand what God has done in transforming our lives and giving us the Holy Spirit and what plan God has for us in the future. But that day will come when we it will be displayed to the world God's intention for His people who've been redeemed and who've put their faith and trust in His Son. Certainly, as uh, John one twelve said, but to as many as receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. Correct. If to them that believe on His name, there's another one here. I don't know if you um, understand this one. It said, "What was Thomas a twin in the Bible?" Was Thomas a twin in the Bible? Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not just sure if he's referring to <clears throat> uh, Thomas the uh, the disciple. Uh, maybe let me let me perhaps deal with that another time. I will see if I can respond to that. I'm not too sure why that has been. Um, but I put a note here, and I promised to read the uh, the person that I will respond. Uh, so it was Thomas was a, a twin. Yes. Okay, I'll double check that, and I will get back to him in the next program. Okay, the last one is what is called the seat of emotion. The seat of emotion basically is, uh, we talk about our heart as being the seat of emotion because the heart is normally the area we talk about we, how, how our feelings are. The, the thing in the New Testament, though, that in the, in the, uh, the seat of emotions in your bowels, you talk the bowels of mercy. Uh, I think you would probably know that when you have an emotional problem, um, whether you're going through depression or something hit you very hard, you normally feel it in your stomach more than your heart. Your heart, nothing happens with your heart. But in the Greek language and, and the Greek culture, the heart became the center of the emotions. In actual fact, in the New Testament, uh, the, 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 the bowels or your intestines was where you feel your emotions. I think we would pretty much agree with, it, with that because when you are emotionally down, sometimes you can't eat and sometimes you do feel it in your stomach, basically. But generally speaking, when people talk about the seat of emotion, talk about the heart, that is where um, it is, you know, is a, a kind of a locus of where people put their emotions in terms of their heart. So when we talk about the intellect, we talk about the head. When we talk about the emotion, we talk about the heart. So the seed of the intellect, uh, intellect is normally considered to be the head. The seed of the emotions considered to be the heart. Thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are broadcasting from Antigua at 1160 kHz AM, 92.3 MHz FM. You could also listen, listen to us online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And you're listening to Dutch Stewart. To reach us on the air, that number is 268-462-7420. That's 268-462-7420. Or if you'd like to send us a WhatsApp or a text message, that number is 268-782-1454. Or you could send us an email at crl. That's truth at gmail.com. Okay, Pastor, we are going to continue as we 
continue to look on the, the doctrine of heaven. We looked at what will be there, what will not be there. We also look at the size of heaven and who will be excluded. My next question to you is, what kind of bodies will we have in heaven? And is there any hint that tells us the kind of uh, bodies that we'll be have in heaven? When you reach uh, my age and perhaps your age, Brother Erskine, uh, we suffer from the five Bs. Uh, baldness, bifocals, bridges, <laughs> bulges, and bunions. <laughs> and I suppose that every one of us at that particular age, uh, we are looking forward to something new because it's at this stage you begin to really feel it. When you're young, you're energetic, you've got all your manhood and all your energy, uh, you, you're really not thinking in this direction. But as you get older, you begin to feel this body begins to wear out. And many times your spirit is still as young as when you were 18 or 19, but the body just can't follow the spirit. Uh, when it comes to the scriptures, um, it, it's very, very clear that uh, the Bible makes it um, clear to us that um, this body that we're in is like a house. And in Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul talks about having a desire uh, that we have a new building, uh, as it were. Could you read for me Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, please? For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. The whole idea is that this body is like a house that we, the, whole, the human spirit is inhabiting this house. Um... The spirit, of course, when we die, the body goes to the grave and the spirit goes to be with the Lord. And we have a desire that this old body that we have that is getting tired and weary and disease prone be removed and be replaced with a heavenly body. And uh, this is a teaching the Bible gives us. And it tells us exactly that we are going to have one day a new body. And uh, it gives us an idea what this new body would be, look, uh, would be like. If you look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, 20 and 21, we have a hint as to what this body would be like. Philippians chapter 3, verse, verse 20, 20, and 20 and 21. The Bible said, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Notice that uh, the goal there is that our body become like his glorious body, and the power that will trans that make that transformation is the same power that Christ has. So we know that whatever body we're going to have in the future is going to be like the body of Christ, a glorified body. In First John chapter 3, verse 2, uh, Brother Erskine would also add to this matter that this new body will be like unto Christ's body. First John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So clearly that whatever body we're going to have in the future is going to be like the body that Christ had after his resurrection. Now when you think about it for just a moment, what was his resurrection body like? Well, for one thing, we know that his identity carried on into his new body. 
he was still recognized as uh, as as Christ. The, the people that knew him, uh, whatever new body he had, he still had the identity that when they saw him, they knew that it was Christ. So this new body that we're going to have, even though it's going to be like onto Christ's body, you know, we'll still maintain some element of our identity. In other words, Erskine, you you will still be Erskine. I will still be David. And the things about me that will still be there, so that when people see me in glory, they'll recognize me and they'll recognize you. The other thing that we know about it, this body that uh, like Christ is that uh, his body was not limited to space, uh, walls, or even locked doors. In uh, John 21, verse 19 and 26, on two different occasions, when the door is locked, uh, you find that Christ comes right through the walls and appears before the disciples. Uh, that gives an idea that uh, somehow, I don't know if you've ever seen Star Trek, but those who've seen Star Trek would know that you're able to transpose one man from one location and put him another, like actually decompose him into his atoms, as it were, and then they recompose him another place. But clearly, the, the, the kind of body we're going to have, his body's not going to be limited. And uh, the same way he could walk through walls and walk through doors and disappear and, and, and reappear, uh, that's the kind of body that we're probably going to have. Uh, the classic passage, however, on this matter of the glorified body in the future is found in Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35, verse 41, 42 to 49. And in that particular passage, when Paul is dealing with the, the new body, the glorified body, there are several things that Paul tells us about that body in Corinthians chapter 15. Number one is it's going to be incorruptible. And uh, that means it's imperishable. Uh, it's not going to decay. It's not going to die. The human spirit never dies, but the human body does. But in the glorified state, we will be having an imperishable body and an incorruptible body so that the human body uh, would also become uh, imperishable. We also know it would be a heavenly body. And when I say heavenly body, uh, I mean a, a body that is suited to live in a heavenly environment. It will not be the same as an earthly body. Down here we need an earthly body to live in the earthly environment. But in that eternal state, we need uh, a body beyond the, the natural, and that's where it's called a heavenly body. The other thing is that each one of us will be somehow unique. Uh, Paul talks about each star differ in, in, in glory from the other. And in that day, uh, there will be a distinction between individuals. And we also know it will be a glorious body, be full of glory, according to Paul. And then it will be a powerful body. It will be a spiritual body. And to put it very succinctly, it's going to be a body exactly like Christ's resurrection body. Now, I don't know about you, but there are things about me I wish I could change. Sometimes we don't like our ears, sometimes we don't like our nose, we don't like our lips, we don't like our body structure, uh, whatever it is. We know that there will be perfection in heaven, and this body of yours one day will be, be brought to that perfection that God talks about, and it will be a completely different transformed body like unto our Lord's glorious body. So would you say that it would be a spiritual body? Yeah, Paul says that in uh, Corinthians chapter 15, it's a spiritual body. Spiritual in the sense that it's a body designed to live in a spiritual environment, in a heavenly environment. Um, the reason why we want to emphasize that is because the, the Jehovah's Witness teach that when Christ was raised from the dead, he was not raised in a body, he was raised in a spirit, and because he was a spirit. But yet we know he was raised in a body that was also a spiritual body because it could be seen. It was not just an invisible um, existence. It was an existence that was also manifested in the physical way. So there is something called a spiritual body, uh, and that's the term that is used in Corinthians chapter 5. 15, sorry. Thank you so much, Pastor Murphy. Just like to let our listeners know, if you have a topic 
that you'd like us us to discuss on here, you could feel free to send us an email and we could do so in a future broadcast or send us a WhatsApp. We'd be glad to tackle that question for you. And remember, if you'd like to go live on the air, that number to reach us is 462-7420. That's 462-7420. Or if you'd like to send us a WhatsApp, the number is 268-782-1454. Pastor Murphy, will we see God in heaven? Well, if we go to Scripture, um, we will have to answer that question in the affirmative. There are several reasons why um, we, I believe that the Bible indicates that we're going to see God. Now, the Bible said no man can see God and live. I think we're aware of that. And that has to do, no man can see God in his sinful state and live. But remember that in the future, in the eternal state, we're not going to be housed in this corrupt human body that still is sinful. This body will be totally transformed like onto the body of Christ. And uh, consequently, we can't use a passive scripture like that uh, to limit the idea that we will not see God. Uh, there are several reasons why I think uh, the, it can be argued that we are going to see him. Uh, let's think for just a moment of what it was before man sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we are told that the song of God, the Adam and Eve heard the song of God as he walked in the garden, and uh, clearly there was a free communication between Adam and God in the Garden of Eden. They had the experience of God's presence in the Garden of Eden. This was in Adam's pre-fall condition. Remember that the whole purpose of redemption is to reverse the fall and almost return us to the uh, pre-fall Adenic, uh, idyllic paradise that was there before. And that is why you find in um, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, everything that was uh, uh, wrong in Genesis chapter 1 and 3 is actually reversed in the book of Genesis, as well you read in the first chapter and the last chapter. So everything that caught was a result of Adam's fall is completely reversed. So if man was able to talk with God and man knew God and spoke with God in the Garden of Eden, when man was in a sinful state, it seems logical uh, for us to assume that returning to that pre-Adamic state where we are no longer sinful, that we would have the same access uh, to God. But there, there are other reasons be- beyond that. In um, Matthew eighteen ten, could you read that for just a moment, please? Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10. Verse 10. The Bible said, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Sorry. The point I'm making there is that the angelic host, uh, who are pure spirit beings before God, and those who have not sinned before God. You notice that in Matthew 18, we're told that the angels are in the very presence of God and they see the face of God. Now, it's inconceivable that the angels would have access to God's face to see God in His presence. And the sons of God, who have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ and made perfect and become exactly like Him, uh, that they would not be given the same privilege of the angelic host having access to see God's face. And remember, these are the sons of God that have been redeemed through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are adopted children into God's family. If the angels could see uh, God's face, 
it seemed to be inconceivable that the sons of God who are redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ would not have the same access. Another one uh, that is very clear, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Uh, could you read that, please? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, uh, mm-hmm. that's a promise that those who are the pure in heart, and of course the pure in heart are the redeemed, uh, they one day will have that privilege of seeing God. There's no, no doubt in my mind about that. And then um, if you look also in Revelation chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, and read that, please. Revelation four, um, 4, verse 2 and 3. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the the throne and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald the point I'm making there is that the the glorified uh, John is glorified state there uh, in terms of his spirit uh, seeing he's able to see something on the throne. Of course, um, he that sat on the throne is described in, in, in terms that are completely mind-boggling. Uh, uh, he uses the description of these different uh, stones that represent uh, what he saw. But clearly there's something that he saw uh, while his spirit was on, in, there in, in the presence of God. So that would give you an idea that you, know, that you can see something visible and whatever was sitting on the throne was God on the throne. But in, in terms of the dimensions, in terms of the, the image, um, the language that is used there is something that's indescribable. But one last verse, Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. I think this, this sums it up and encapsulates it uh, with a great definiteness. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Again, very, very clear that you see his face, right? So we, we don't have any <coughs> doubt about that, that the day is coming when we as believers will see God. Uh, and then Paul talks about, then should I know face to face, face to face encounter. So I don't have any doubt in my mind that the redeemed of God who have been adopted in God's family, who have put their faith and trust in Christ and who are now the sons of God, that one day they will have access and actually see God face to face. Uh, I think that day is coming, and it's a, a day that I think that all of us anticipate. Uh, what exactly does God look like? Um, and the descriptions that are given in the book of Revelation are, are, are descriptions designed to give us a spirit of awe in regard to the magnificence of who this one is and the majesty of the glory of God. But that day is coming when we will see him face to face, as Revelation chapter 22, verse 4 says. So I do believe that we will see God in heaven. So what a glorious sight that will be when we all get to heaven to see our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, face to face. We shall behold him. I say amen to that, my brother. You know, Pastor Murphy, uh, I think I always hear this question asked. Um, I don't know if you have given it any thought, but will there be any marriage in heaven? Well, uh, Christ answered that question for us, and I can't give you the exact chapter out of my head right now, but you remember that um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were trying to entrap him, 
And uh, number one, the Sadducees never believed in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, so they put a trick question to him. And uh, referring to the Leverett Law in the Old Testament, where if a man had a, char- had a, a wife and the, 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 uh, the woman's husband died, if the brother didn't have, he wasn't married, the brother was not to take up the wife or the um, deceased brother, and he's supposed to produce children on his behalf. And then they, they tried to trap him. They said, well, if this brother died, and then the second one died, and the third one died, <laughs> and the fifth one died, and the seventh died, the question was, whose wife would she be in heaven? <laughs> and our Lord uh, devastated uh, the argument. He said, you don't even know the word of God and the power of God. He said that in heaven, uh, we'd be like angels, and there'd be no marriage or given in marriage in heaven. So clearly, uh, using that particular chapter, uh, there's not going to be any marriage in heaven. There's not going to be any sex in heaven, by the way. Uh, for those of you who think it's a, a sensual paradise, like the Muslims who believe that if you <laughs> die, you go, you know, you get seven virgins and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, all of that's a carnal concept of heaven. The Bible teaches very clearly that there's neither marriage in heaven. Uh, you're not going to have children in heaven either. Uh, that's the biblical teaching, just like the angels. They don't marry, they don't reproduce. And uh, in that eternal state, uh, the sexual drive would be taken away and uh, there would be no, no marriage in heaven. That's the biblical teaching on that subject. So all those who enter into heaven will be there. There will be no more procreation. Uh, the human race will not be right, increased. There will be no pro- pro- procreation. But uh, again, uh, some people think, well, Pastor, that doesn't truly be boring. Uh, <laughs> Well, I don't think we really understand what God has planned for us. All I can tell you is whatever delights we have down here is going to be far better up there. God uh, would so reconstitute us that the thing that will bring us the greatest glory and the greatest excitement and the greatest joy and the greatest pleasure, um, that will be something that God will certainly instill in us so that uh, we achieve our greatest sense of pleasure, especially in worship and adoring Him. You know, and I, I don't know about people, but I find tremendous pleasure in learning. I am like a little child at 65. I still want to learn. There's so many things I want to find out about. I just wish I was still 18. I, I don't know how young people can go to school and have all these privileges and never seize the moment. I am at the point now where if I told you my interests and what I would like to find out about, uh, you would think, Pastor, you you, you know, I, I thought you were just interested in theology. No, not just in theology. I'm fascinated, for example, by electronics, totally fascinated by, by that area. And I want to delve into that area to find out uh, how things operate, why they operate. Um, and I believe that in glory, part of the, the pleasure that we're going to have is not just, it's not sensual pleasure, just sitting down and, you know, eating fruits and enjoying the, the scenario and the, and, the, and the paradise that is there. But I do think that we will go on from learning to learning, from knowledge to knowledge. And those of you who really appreciate knowledge, uh, your day is coming when you will have an exa- inexhaustible resource. Uh, in terms of the pursuit of that, and that will bring you tremendous pleasure. For those of you who have other means of finding pleasure, I can assure you uh, that God has His way of ensuring that your delights are met and met in, in the most absolute way. You're listening to That's Truth, coming to you from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the beautiful island of Antigua. Pastor, there's another um, question I would like to ask. It's uh, um, one that has um, 
been difficult for me to understand for a long while, but I recently I think I have grasped and understand it. But there might be some people who are still struggling with this um, question. And the question is, is the Millennium Kingdom the same as the heaven where we are going to spend eternity with God? No, I think the Bible makes it. As a matter of fact, the reason why we did this particular series and the the general profile that we've given you about Bible prophecy is that you have the, first of all, we're in we're the present state we're in, now we're living in the age of grace. It's the age of the church age. And we were once under law. Now we're into the church age. Remember that Israel was set aside because of the unbelief and God has grafted the church into his plan. When God is complete with the church, he raptures the church. The church is taken out of this world. God, as Paul tells us in Corinthians chapter, in uh, Romans chapter 11, God will now regraph Israel back into his plan. And they will do the work that the church has failed to do. And our work has been, what? Going to all the world and preach the gospel. Yet after 2,000 years, you have billions of people who still have not received the gospel because God's people had been delinquent. They have uh, made this world the center of their satisfaction, of their pleasure. And uh, they have not been prepared to make the kind of sacrifice that's required to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So after the church has its failure, the church is raptured. God deals with them. And then you've got Israel in this plan, this seven-year period called the tribulation period. God does two things in the tribulation period. He chases the world because of their unbelief, a time of punishment like the world has never seen. By the time God is all over dealing with humankind in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 4 to chapter twenty you find that two-thirds of human, humankind is completely obliterated. The Bible says there has never been, nor will there ever be a time like this. God finally deals with man's rebellion. But in the process as well, he's purifying Israel and refining Israel and bringing Israel back to faith. And they become the evangelists for 144,000 going to all the world. And at the end of their work, we read a multitude which no man could number comes out of the tribulation period. So you've got the rapture, you've got the tribulation period. Then we've got Christ's returning, glorious return, uh, where he comes with his angels, and he sets up his millennial kingdom, which would last for a thousand years. You find that in um, Revelation chapter 20. So after tribulation, our Lord returns gloriously, and uh, we enter what is called the millennial kingdom. After the millennial kingdom, we are told that Satan is set loose for a period of time. He goes and deceives the nations, and then... Christ comes back and defeat what is called the, Gog of, the Battle of Gog and Magog. Uh, and then we have the eternal state, which is the New Jerusalem coming down. So the millennium is a thousand years before the New Jerusalem comes down. And if you follow the, the presentation in the book of um, Revelations, the sequence of those events, you'll find that we must not confuse the millennium with the eternal state, which has to do with the new Jerusalem. The millennium has to do with God fulfilling his promises that he made to Israel. God made promises to Israel that has never been fulfilled. Not because God is incapable, but because of Israel's uh, unbelief and because of Israel uh, moving away from God. And by the way, the promises that God made to Israel were unilateral eternal covenants that he made with her. It, uh, so therefore, he has to fulfill those promises. And in the millennial kingdom, uh, Christ will sit on the throne of David and rule from Jerusalem. That was the promise that was made to David. And as I've said several times when you read the book of Genesis, that the extent of the real estate that God gave to Israel reaches from the river Egypt to the river Euphrates. That has never been fulfilled. That has to be fulfilled. God doesn't make a promise he can't, he can't keep. So the promises that he made to Israel will be kept during the millennial kingdom. 
and then we'll move from there into the eternal state. But you know what I find? There are times when you find that people seem to mix up some of the prophecies which have to deal with the millennium and the heaven. Yeah, I agree with that. Part of the confusion, by the way, and by the way, let me just say this, that most of the Reformed churches that have come out of the Reformed theology, uh, Calvinistic churches, they don't have the, the uh, they, they confuse the millennium with the eternal state as well. And uh, as a matter of fact, they have no place for Israel. All the promises that were made to Israel, uh, if Israel forfeited when they turned away from the cross and rejected Jesus Christ. And so all the promises made to Israel are now assumed within the church. So all of those things became the church. The problem with that is when you read Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, where Paul sets forth very clearly God's plan for Israel. Israel's past, Israel's present, and Israel's future dealt in those chapters. And we are told very clearly that God will regraph Israel back into his program. That takes place during the tribulation period when Israel is refined and purified and the nation is brought to belief, etc. But let me just say something else, Erskine, uh, about this matter. You know, because of uh, eschatology, this thing of Bible prophecy, that there's so many divergent views on this matter, uh, I would recommend that we do not make uh, Bible prophecy a basis of fellowship. And what I mean by that is we have a lot of good churches, a lot of good uh, people and, and God's people who really differ with us on some of these matters. A lot of Most churches today are not premillennial. Most evangelical churches are, but the majority of Christian churches are, are millennial, mm-hmm. right? And we should not, because of that, uh, write them off as though they're not believers. I think we've got to understand that the big issue that we need to stick with is the fundamentals. And what I mean by that is this, the, uh, the, the virgin birth of Christ, his resurrection, hell, heaven, uh, uh, the vicarious atonement of Christ, um, uh, the deity of Christ, these are the fundamentals. But you've always had people who uh, had divergent views on Bible prophecy, uh, who have always been able to work together. As a matter of fact, if you study fundamentalism, and the history of fundamentalism, you'll find that fundamentalism, this might shock you, Erskine, were not made of a Baptist. They were made up of Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, uh, Calvinist, uh, Baptist, of course. But these were people who held to the fundamentals and had to defend the Christian faith in the 19th century. Because in the 19th century, after Darwin wrote his Origin of Species, this was an explosive view, and uh, the church was moving away from the scriptures and going in the way of evolution. And these men came together and held the authority of the scriptures, the inspiration of the scriptures, but they had divergent views in Bible prophecy. And that never prevented them from working together to once again salvage the Christian faith from being, uh, uh, being destroyed by sticking together and emphasizing what's called the fundamentals. Our A. Tory uh, have, a, I think, the series of five books volume 1, 2 to 5, where they, they set up very clearly what the fundamentals were. So uh, my point is that there are people who will differ with us on these things in respect to the, not that they don't differ with hell or there's going to be heaven, but they differ with us as the, whether it's going to be the rapture, is pre-rapture, whether it's mid-rapture, whether it's post-rapture. These are issues that, uh, that are different among people in respect to private prophecy. They should not stop us from treating each other as Christians and being able to work with each other um, in something that's much wider, much broader. Um, and the other thing I would say to you, uh, Brother Erskine, is that don't forget that Bible prophecy has really become a major topic, only say within the last hundred years. If you read books like um, Matthew Henry, uh, commentaries, 
you will find that he is, was a Presbyterian, and you'll discover that he does not view, have a premillennial view like you have a premillennial view. But nobody would dispute that Matthew Henry's commentary is one of the greatest devotional commentaries that has ever been written. And that doesn't avoid me from reading Matthew Henry because when I'm dealing with prophecy, I'm aware that he will differ with me on that subject. Uh, so I'm just saying that we should not make prophecy a basis uh, for fellowship because the, the views are very, very divergent. And I keep saying again and again, the last thing, but let me say something else again. If you go into any theological seminary today, uh, you'll find that most of the doctrinal books that are used, with very few exceptions, were people who are amillennials. Uh, uh, so you'll find that even in Baptist colleges, uh, you'll find that they're using the theological textbook that they'll be using, basically, uh, would be men who do not hold the premillennial view that we hold the view. And the reason for that is at that time of their life, prophecy was not something that was given to, uh, any considerable study. It's only within the last hundred years that people are devoted in terms to the whole matter of, and that's clarified the biblical doctrine in this matter. I was reading uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones today. Okay. And uh, I don't think there's any, in my judgment, there's no greater preacher than Martin Lloyd-Jones in the modern times. Martin Lloyd-Jones is not a premillennialist. He simply is not that. And I was reading him today, and, I'm, and by the way, his textbook was used in a Baptist school in Puerto Rico, uh, even though the, that Baptist school did not hold to his view on eschatology last things. But most of what he wrote and in, in his book on doctrines, I mean, you and I would embrace it, but when it comes to Bible prophecy, uh, there's a difference of opinion, and I don't think that puts him in the realm where we consider him a heretic because he holds a different view on this subject. Okay, Pastor, we have an interesting question here from a listener here in Antigua. The listener said they were intoxicated and was admitted to the hospital, and in a dream, they saw the face of a man supposing it to be God, and he said, you are in safe hands. I saw God, and I am still alive. Please respond, Pastor Murphy, since it is said no man can see God and live. Well, again, you are saying you see God, but you're saying that you were intoxicated and you had a dream. <laughs> so I'm not too sure how you saw God. Uh, you didn't see God face to face in your sinful nature. And I could, I could assume, I would say to you right now, that if you are a sinful person and uh, God was actually on planet Earth, you could not be in His presence. You would be totally consumed and obliterated. So what you had is a dream. And sometimes, uh, personally, I don't give much credit to dreams. I not say that God can't speak to a person in a dream. Uh, but clearly, God has His Word, and His Word is His final authority. As long as your dream doesn't contradict the Bible, I would not in any way try to dispute your dream. But when your dream contradicts the Bible, there's something that's wrong. It's either your dream is right, or the Bible is right. And in my judgment, your dream is false. If you're saying that you had an actually encounter with God, uh, I'm saying to you that no man in his sinful nature uh, could have an encounter with God. So don't assume that a dream means that that is reality. Uh, uh, you were still on planet Earth. Your body was still there. So you, you saw God in a dream, but you didn't see God in your human flesh. In your, and so I think that would be the explanation. No man can see God in his current sinful nature and, and live. You'd be consumed with God's God, of, of God's holiness. But seeing God in a dream and seeing God in reality are two different things altogether. I don't know if that helps the listener, but um, that's the conclusion we must reach in this matter. 
And by the way, could I say this? Even though you might have seen uh, God in a dream, if I want to, I would ask you another question. If you have not repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'm saying to you that what you saw is a deception. Because unless you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, you're not fit to stand in the presence of God. And uh, so don't take that dream as a reality. Ask yourself the question, is God saying a message to, to me? Uh, or is this some kind of a deception that the other enemy has also given me a dream? Because if you don't know Christ as Savior, you're not ready to sit, stand in the presence of God. I can guarantee you that, sir. And he says, supposing to be God, why not Satan? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Pastor Murphy, um, about rewards, what will um, happen in heaven when Christians appear before God? You know, I, I like that question, Nurse, because I, I think that we, you know, we see people making so much fuss about winning a little trophy. Uh, they spend, I think, four years preparing for the Olympics. Eight hours a day, uh, practicing, 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 and then when it's all over after eight hours, twenty, uh, uh, four years of practice, eight hours a day, they do it all to get a little piece of gold around their neck, uh, and that is fascinating. The uh, but you know the, the applause of being put on the stadium, being put on a platform. You've got the three people: the first, the second, and the third, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's one of those days when we broadcast all over the world. Especially we got an Antigua and he came in third in, in the 100 meter. Uh, he'd be given land and property. He'd be celebrated. They'll meet him at the airport. They'll parade him up on Dongli mm-hmm. Island. He's the greatest thing that Antigua's ever produced. Well, our day's coming. And we've got to remember that. And for God's people who live in silence and live in secrecy and people don't even see what we're doing for the Lord. And sometimes you can get quite lonely uh, in this realm and wonder, well, when will our day come? And that's where the Bible gives a tremendous promise that there's not a, there's not a thing that we ever do for God, not a sacrifice we've ever made, that is not going to be rewarded. And the celebration is going to be like nothing to compare what we have on planet Earth. It'll not just be a few people, it'll be the entire universe, angelic beings and all redeemed believers uh, there to celebrate with us as God gives us our rewards. There are many passages in the Bible, by the way, that reassures the believer that there's a day of coming where we were going to get rewards. And uh, Brother Erskine, I wonder if you can just look at one or two of them for me. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8 and verse 14. First Corinthians yeah, chapter 3, 3 verse, verse 8, 8 and 14. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And it, verse 14? Verse 14 said... If any man's work abide, which he had built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. The clear thing there that Paul is teaching is because there's a, a confusion there in the church at Corinth about personality conflicts and personality cults where you've got Apollos, you've got Paul, you've got Peter, and people competing. And a fourth group saying, I don't believe to Peter, Paul, or Peter. I'm just, I'm just a person who follows Christ. And what Paul is pointing out there, that the important thing there is that you know, it's God that gives the increase, but every man will be rewarded according to his works. So whether it be Paul, or whether it be Apollos, or whether it be Peter, 
uh, every man is going to get a reward. So we ought not to be competing uh, for each other's reward. We ought to focus on doing what God has called us to do and uh, put our work into it, our effort into it, and knowing that we shall receive a reward of the Lord. But notice that every man shall receive a reward according to his works, according to his deeds. If you also look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8, uh, uh, Erskine, Ephesians 6, 8. The Bible said, Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall receive of the Lord, whether it be done, whether it be bond or free. Again, uh, very, very clear. Every man shall receive a reward uh, according to what kind of work that he does. Uh, If you look also at um, Hebrews Hebrews 11.6, a very familiar verse there, Hebrews 11.6. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So notice that God is going to reward us, and we must believe that as well, by the way. Uh, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, and he has made promises to us, and he's, he's, he's told us to labor for him, work for him, and the day is coming when we will give an account for stewardship, and he's going to reward us for how faithful we have been in dispensing our responsibility that he's assigned to us. But notice that uh, there's going to be reward. And then one other verse there, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 to 26, uh, Brother Erskine. Hebrews chapter chapter 11, verse 24 to 26. The Bible said, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called, sorry, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Again, notice that Moses weighed this thing very carefully. You can have either temporary (coughs) pleasure and enjoy the abundance that Egypt offered, or he can identify himself with God's people, suffer with God's people. But notice he had um, he had respect unto the recompense of reward. He knew a reward was coming uh, for his sacrifice he made in respect to becoming the emancipator of leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. But um, he weighed it clearly. He weighed what Egypt offered. He weighed what God offered. And he, in his judgment, the reward that is in the future... Um, because of the work and his faithfulness in doing what God has called him to do, far exceeded the temporary reward that Egypt has offered. The same choice is, is ours. We can either have all that we have down here, the temporary satisfaction lasts only for a very few short years, or we can look beyond that, the immediate, and we can look into the future, that we'll have, have eternity with him and we'll have the rewards. So notice that clearly in these passages, there are, there are, there are going to be rewards for the believer. But just as there are degrees of punishment, for the one who is unbelieving and those who are doomed for uh, eternity in hell, there are also going to be de- degrees of rewards, uh, and the Bible makes that very, very clear uh, as well. If you look at Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 to 15, can we just read that again, please, for me? 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3, 3, verse 10 to 15. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed 
how he buildeth thereon. <coughs> so we thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Again, the Apostle Paul is using an analogy. He's using uh, um, the concept of a building as a kind of a metaphor. And uh, Paul is just saying, you know, imagine what it's like building a house. The material that you put into this house, if you put gold, silver, and precious stone, and there's a fire, uh, you'll find that when the fire is all over, that, that remains. Uh, the gold, silver are still there. Uh, however, if you, if you build of wood, hay, and stubble, and the fire comes, it means that those things are destroyed. And Paul's point is, <coughs> the fire speaks of judgment. In the Old Testament, uh, you'll find that it, it talks about judgment. And Paul is saying that the believer one day will be judged, his works will be judged. And just to use the analogy, it's like a person taking these building materials and put it through a fire. Only that which has a quality of that which is enduring is going to last that which is perishable is going to disappear. And Paul's point is here that how we build on what God has given to us, how we use what God has given to us, what service we render to Him, what is the quality of our service. Uh, that's going to determine whether or not there's going to be any reward. Some of the work that we do is going to be burned up because we did it out of wrong motives. Uh, it's not quality work. We had vested interests, and sometimes our acts were selfish, and uh, that would be burned up in the day of judgment. But when we did something for the glory of God, for the praise of God, for the people of God, in the interest of God's work, that is going to be rewarded. Okay, Pastor Murphy, we have a caller from <coughs> Nevis. Good evening, caller. Yes, good evening. Good evening, sir. Yes, um, I'm calling about... Two questions. One about the kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, the millennium kingdom, as you call it, uh-huh. and also about heaven. Now, I listen to the program, the, uh, the past program. Yes, please. But I still have a problem. Uh-huh. I don't understand how the city that Jesus says come down from God out of heaven uh-huh. is heaven. Oh, I, okay. I okay. get a little problem uh-huh. because it. Okay, well, again, because the way we've been conditioned, we've been conditioned in a, in a way of thinking as Christians that when we die, we are going to be to yeah, we're going to be in heaven, right? That uh, and where God dwells in the third heaven, but the heaven that the, the Bible talks about uh, in terms of where we will be after our bodies have been glorified is that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. There is going to be a new earth, by the way. And by the yeah. way, P- Peter tells that the, this world is going to be destroyed and by a fiery judgment. So, planet Earth cannot be saved by humankind. 
Uh, I'm not saying we should not be concerned about the environment, we should not be concerned about good air, good water, etc. But it's a myth that we can save planet Earth. This Earth is doomed for destruction, and the Bible predict, predicts that. But there's going to be a new heaven and a new Earth. And according to what we have in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we must sometimes lay aside our pre-biased speculation of what, how we've been conditioned to think. God says that what I'm going to do is that I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and that the Jerusalem, which is he gives you the dimension, is going to come down from his heaven, the third heaven, and it will be suspended above this new earth, and that's where we will be with him. Now, what is heaven, by the way? Heaven is where God is. And the Bible yeah. says in, in, in Revelation chapter 21, there'll be no light there because God will be the light of this place and he will dwell with his people. He will tabernacle with his people. So that will be heaven because heaven is where God is and God will there be uh, in, in um, the new Jerusalem with us. That's where heaven is. But we are also going to be able to, I have no doubt in my mind, we'll be able to commute between heaven, this new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven and we're not told that it rests on planet earth we're told that it's coming down so clearly it's either going to be suspended or rest on a new heaven or on the new earth but the point that needs to be made is that we're still going to have access to the the new earth as as well as having access to the new jerusalem whether or not we'll be able to commute from each from each place um, there are no details about you that. Don't know. There are no details, but I don't doubt that we'll be able to commute between the the New Jerusalem suspended above and the, the the New Earth. Because why do you need a New Earth, right? And remember that if you go back to the Book of Genesis, uh, it is very very clear that the original plan for man was that man would really inhabit the Earth. That was the original plan. God would come down and God would meet with man. I believe that the this new heaven and new earth is a reversal of going back to what the Edenic Edenic plan was. So that you got God, uh, you got both the heavenly city coming down. You also got the new heaven and the, the new earth. So that is the biblical I'm doctrine. Speaking about the new heaven and the new earth. Uh -huh. In Isaiah sixty six and verse twenty two, it says, I will. "For as the new heavens and the new earth." Uh -huh. which I shall will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so your seed and your name will remain. Correct, because again, this is why Israel cannot be destroyed, by the way, because he's talking about Israel and yeah. the seed of Israel. That's why when people say that God is done with Israel, they need to rethink their theology. God is never finished with Israel. God, God cannot break his unconditional, eternal covenant that he made with Israel. It is true that he has set aside Israel because of unbelief. But again, I keep telling people who have doubts about what God's plan is for Israel, read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you'll see very clearly that God gives you the whole perspective there. But that's the point he's making there. Israel's seed can never disappear because there will be as eternal as the new heaven that God is going to create. And that's mm -hmm. why God has never abandoned Israel and can never abandon his people because he had made eternal covenants with them. So the same way Israel will be perpetuated and will continue. Uh, and, and by the way, if I might say this, I get a little excited about this. The greatest miracle today in terms of world history is that little nation. How that nation that just has about 10 million people surrounded by over uh, close to 100 million people who are his enemies on north, south, east, except with the, uh, on the on the um, the west, mm -hmm. 
completely blockaded. How she's able to survive, to my mind, is one of the greatest miracles of modern time. You've got, you take the ratio of the, uh, the Arab nations Arab. and their hostility, yet she's able to survive because uh, God has pledged to protect that nation. I'm not saying Israel is perfect, don't misunderstand me, but no, he's no. pledged to protect that nation, and there's nothing that can ever be done to wipe the Jew off the planet Earth. If that ever happened, it means that God would be dethroned from his kingdom. But mm-hmm. you're, you're very right about that uh, in that passage in Isaiah chapter 61, that God is saying, you know, uh, Israel as a nation, the seed of Israel, is as imperishable as the new heaven and new earth that he will create. But uh, we get to, we got to go back to Genesis, uh, go back to Revelations twenty one and twenty two. That's where we we are set forth to us what this heaven is for us as God's people. And sometimes because of what we've been taught very early that we're going to be some eerie place somewhere, zipping from one planet to another. That's the idea that we have. But remember that heaven is where God is. And he tells us in that passage that he will come down and dwell among his people. There'll be no more temple there. Uh, because God will be the temple. There'll be no light there because God will be the light. He will be there with his people. Uh, and I suspect, by the way, and I don't don't have any biblical verse for this, but I do suspect that we're going to be able to do some amazing things uh, in that, that, that heaven. I, do, I hope you know that the our galaxy, which is called the Milky Way, has got a billion stars in it. And the universe is so big, the Nautilus have got a billion galaxies just the size of our galaxy. So there's so much to explore and so much to know that I can guarantee you that we will never be bored. This, this, this universe, by the way, they do not even know how to measure it. The more they discover, it is larger than even what they've discovered. We have an almost infinite world because we've got an infinite God. And uh, that gives us some idea of what is ahead for us as God's people. Let's rejoice that our day is coming when we will bear the fruits of serving Him and living for Him for His glory. Um, another question. Yes, sir. The kingdom of God. Uh-huh. The, the, the kingdom of God, which is the millennium kingdom, millennial kingdom, uh-huh. the thousand-year reign of Christ. Yes. After the end of the thousand-year reign, what happens to the kingdom? Well, again, the, the, the earthly kingdom meshes into the eternal kingdom. That's the point. The point is that this temporary kingdom, the millennial kingdom, I keep mentioning this. The reason why there must be a millennial kingdom, an earthly kingdom of a thousand years, is because of the promises God made to the Jews. God promised that one would sit on David's throne that will be eternal. There's only one person who's eternal who will sit on David's throne. That is Christ Jesus. God tells us in the Bible that he, he shall reign from Jerusalem. That has never happened uh, in, in terms of the Christ sitting on the throne and ruling from Jerusalem. So the millennial kingdom is, is necessary to fulfill the promises God made to Abraham that were never fulfilled because of the, the unbelief of Israel and God having to set aside Israel. But he now has to fulfill those promises. He can't make a promise that he can't fulfill. It would mean that he made a decision knowing he could not fulfill it. And that's why I keep saying, when you read Genesis, it gives you the demarcations of the real estate that was given to be given to the Jews. It was to go from the river Nile to the river Euphrates. At no time has that ever happened. In the millennial kingdom, that will happen. See? Uh-huh. Because of the promises he made, they will now be fulfilled. 
And that's where the millennial kingdom is so important as far as eschatology is concerned. You remember in Acts chapter 1, the disciples were asking the question, Will thou at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said, It's not for you to know the time I'm going to restore the kingdom of Israel. That set in my father alone knows that. Right? That's the kingdom that is going to come. But the Jews understood that the promises made to David and to Abraham, etc., had to be fulfilled. And that would be fulfilled during the Millennial Kingdom. After that is completed, then that blends into the eternal kingdom. And we have the, the new heaven and the new earth begins to happen. So one leads to the other because there can be no kingdom after that but the eternal kingdom. Does that help? Um, okay. Um, if you look at our... First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24 and 25. Uh-huh. I don't know if you could explain that to me. Uh, let me see if I can do it very quickly. If I can't, I would have to refer to it and, and deal with it another time. But let me see if I can respond to you very quickly. Um, read that for me, please. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24, verse 24 and 25. And 25. Uh-huh. Then come at the end yeah. when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. Even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he had put all enemies under his feet. Now that's a very good question because here's the point again. Read the, read the passage again in, in the, the book of uh, don't, um, Revelation chapter 20 where we talk about the millennial kingdom. It lasts for a thousand years. The devil is bound for a thousand years so he cannot deceive the nations. At the end of that, his release. And because uh, the millennial kingdom involves people who are, remember in Matthew chapter 25, uh, the nations are going to be judged to how they treat Israel during the tribulation period. Those that protected Israel, uh, exercising faith in God, they'll be going into the kingdom. Uh, but the point I'm making here is that after the millennial kingdom, the devil is set loose again and he goes about and deceives even those who live during the millennial kingdom. And there's a final rebellion called the Battle of Gog and Magog. So Christ must put all the enemies, completely obliterate all of his enemies. After he has done that and squashed the final rebellion, he turns the kingdom over to his father. That's, that's what he's saying. He's now disabled mm. all of his enemies. Now he turns the kingdom over to his father. And that goes into what is called the eternal well, state. Then the kingdom wouldn't be ending. Right, that's the it point. Just be over to God. Correct. That's, that's the point there. That's why the millennial kingdom at the end after the rebellion... Christ now conquers all of the final rebellion that is there, and then all his enemies are now dealt with, and now he turns the kingdom over to his Father, and we go into what is called the eternal state. Uh-huh. That's exactly what happens there. So that explains how the millennium fits into the eternal kingdom. Okay. okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome, I You too, okay, sir. Thank you, caller. I think most of us, after the millennium, don't really understand the transition. Uh-huh. From the millennium yeah, but kingdom. that verse, that verse there, Brother Erskine, uh, is very, very clear that he must put all his enemies under his foot, completely conquer all his enemies, and then turn the kingdom over to his father. That be- makes sense now, but because after the millennium came, there's a final rebellion, the battle of Gog and Magog. When that is complete, that means all the enemies are finally dealt with. Satan, all of them are dealt with. Now he turns the kingdom over to his father. We have a listener who um, sent in a question here from Antigua. Sure. It said, will the new Jerusalem replace the whole world? Well, when you say the whole world, you mean planet Earth, uh, if that's what they mean. Because don't forget that our, world, our Earth is suspended in the great universe. 
uh, we parted the Milky Way. So when you talk the 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 uh, if the what is that the New Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem, uh, the 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 current Earth is 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 going to be destroyed. Uh, Peter tells us that in the book of Peter that they will be destroyed with a fervent heat, the elements and the earth and all that is therein, and God, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. So the the earth that we have well, is not the earth that we're talking about. It's a new heaven and new earth to be created, and out of that new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem comes down. So if the person means that the the earth as it is is not going to exist, the answer to that question is yes. Uh, but I'm not too sure what they mean by the world. Um, and they talk the, the the planet Earth. They talk about the entire universe. I'm not sure what they're talking about, but we do know that the, the the Earth is going to be destroyed and new heaven and new Earth. And when we talk the new heaven, and new Earth, we don't mean the third heaven. We mean the atmospheric heaven that is there. You know, the three heavens. There's the atmospheric heaven, there's the stellar heaven, and the third heaven. And it would refer, of course, to the the atmospheric heaven where we are as a planet Earth is concerned. But um, so that would be the, the teaching in that regard. Thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. We are just about out of time. Okay, we want to thank you very much for being a part of the program tonight. We do appreciate all those who have taken the time out to join us, those who have called in and sent in the, their questions. We certainly do appreciate you doing so, and we do trust that you have been enlightened and you have grasp some truths that will help you in your daily walk with the Lord. So from the program, it's goodbye and may God bless you. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.